Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to continue in the book of Matthew and your crucifixion. And we just ask you to guide and lead us into what you'd have us to see from this. In your son's precious name, amen. amen. All right. Matthew chapter 27. And we left off on uh, 28, so we're going to be starting 29. And so far we've been talking about the fake trial of Jesus, the, the presentation before Pilate, where Pilate says he's innocent, but goes ahead and lets them crucify him anyway. Uh, and we saw the soldiers in the last of this talk about how they stripped him and put a scarlet band, uh, robe on him. That was 27, 20, uh, 28 there. And we left off there with them doing that. And so we're going to be looking at 20. Well, let's go ahead and read 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put a, on him a, red, a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand, and they bowed a knee, the knee before him and mocked him, and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him in the face. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put him on his own raiment and led, led him away to be crucified. So look at this and... You know, we think about this, and most of us as Christians usually just think about the crucifixion part of, of his uh, trial. But, you know, he had this fake trial. Then he gets mocked by the, by the soldiers. The soldiers are, you know, his charge is that he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. So they make fun of him. And, uh, you know, they, and it says here they took the whole band of soldiers, and if we, Remember last week we talked about that this was a sixth part of a legion is the word that's used. And I can't believe that all 600 of them were making this fun of him, but it is possible. We, we even see it you know, on a big police bust. If there's drugs involved, you end up with, you end up with you know, eight or nine officers all there to get their name on the report for a drug bust. You know, and I can almost picture this. You know, here's the Jews wanting this guy dead. and. You know, it's been a big deal, and maybe they're just, you know, having fun, and, and maybe it was all 600 of them participating in this, uh, uh, one-sixth of the legion. But it seems like an awfully large number of people. But it is an idea that Jesus was mocked. You know, and this is one of the things that we think of. You know, Jesus suffered everything that man suffers. He, you know, and I've used this actually out in the prison when somebody goes, well, you don't know what it's like to be mistreated, you know, I go, well, yeah, but Jesus doesn't. No, how would he know? And I'm going, well, you know, he went to a court and was, was ramrodded through the court and then sent to be executed. He knows exactly the, what you've gone through. Lying witnesses that were hired to perjure themselves against him. He knows exactly what you've gone through. And it kind of makes it an interesting thing. Jesus has been through anything and everything people have gone through, including being mocked. You know, being mocked in a great way. And he's been rejected all through his four years of ministry, and now he's being mocked and being, you know, dressed up as a king, and then, you know, it says they bowed their knee and, and mocked him. I can't yeah. believe, like, some of our, like, mocking and spitting at him and all that. I mean, that is... Yeah. And you know, they put on a scarlet robe, and a scarlet robe was a, they, a, a robe of wealth. Scarlet and purple was showed, you know, Purple was royalty, and, and scarlet and purple were both colors that were, 
not easily made, so they were for, of wealth and, and prestige. And then it says they, they plated a crown of thorns, and from what the word on thorns were here indicates, it was a plant that had large thorns. It wasn't just putting a, you know, doing a rose bush together and, you know, little pricks. These were things that they say were inch to inch and a half thick thorns. <laughs> yeah. And this was the name of the thorn on this was, you know, the type of plant that has that really long thorns. And then they said that they pressed it into his head. It wasn't just laid there. It wasn't, you know, you know it was pressed in. These guys were being cruel and vicious in their mocking and their hatred that was being just after that they put a reed in his hand and then they bowed before him and mocked you know here's our here's your king you know there's his scepter a little little reed and a, there's his crown crown on him and they knelt down and they said hail king of jews and they spit upon him and took the reed and then smote him on the head so they, this reed obviously wasn't just a lightweight reed this was a after they got done mocking him and beating on him led him through the streets. Everything about the cross in normal stand circumstances was torture. Uh, the scourging alone was a torture that most people barely lived through. And we shared with you, the Roman only had one rule, is don't kill the person when you scourge them. Uh, and it was, they could make that last as long as they wanted or as short as they wanted. And the soldiers used to make it last for a long time. They, they wanted it to be a big deal. And it says, then they led him to be crucified. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to carry the cross. And uh, as we look at this, it says in one of the other gospels that he stumbled. And before Simon of Cyrene was to carry the cross. And because this was a big part of the crucifixion, they, they carried the cross member of the, of the cross to where they were going to be hung. It was part of their, their torture to carry this rough cut wood. And don't ever get a picture like we have in, you know, in most of the crosses we see of nice smooth wood. It was not smooth and it was not smooth on purpose. Kind of like our cross. <laughs> yeah, more like a, and rougher than that one even, but closer to the cross we have out, uh, out there. And when we sing about the old rugged cross, that's literally what it was in their mind. It was designed that with splinters would be put up and down their back as they were trying to survive on the cross. Just one more torture. At, you know, a big splinter up your, up your back as you're pushing up. And anybody who's even had a small splinter knows how painful that is, much less a huge splinter from this cross that they're, they're, they're bringing in. Oh, he's, well, he's not black and blue. He's bloodied. The, the, remember, the flagellum and the scourging took chunks of meat off of his body. He was not just black and blue. He was pulverized on his back. And it says that he was not recognizable even as a man. He had been beaten so bad. The scourging itself was something that was severe, especially when the Romans did it. Now, the Jews were really nice to you. They'd never give you more than 39 strikes. With, and they would use the whip or a cane. And the Romans did not have a limit on it. And they used the flagellum, which had 7 to 11 straps on it, 
weighted down with bone and, and, and rocks and glass or whatever they could so that when it got, went in, it would drag and, and pull out chunks. And there are records of them taking bets on who could, who could char, you know, take out the largest chunk of flesh from the victims. So this was a game for these soldiers. It was not something they, you know, that they thought, they didn't even feel bad about this torture. They, it was a game to them. All right, I got that piece. Let's see who got the biggest piece, you know. And, and this is the type of stuff they did as they tortured that. Jesus carried his cross most of the way, and then Simon of Cyrene was compelled to compare. And this is one of the things that in Roman day, the soldiers could make people walk a mile for them. Uh, matter of fact, it was they had carried their heavy packs, and they could t walk up to any citizen and say, "You're going to carry my my pack," and you were, they they could compel you to carry it one mile. And this were, there were just like our streets markers on the road every mile, and usually what would happen as soon as they got to the end of that mile, they dropped that pack and got out of there as fast as they could. Uh, even though they weren't allowed to compel, you know, compel them, they still didn't take any chances. This is why Jesus said, if, they, if you're asked to care, go one mile, go two. You know, be that servant that goes the extra, extra mile. And that's where that whole phrase comes from. And then they get to, and when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of the skull, this is where they nailed Jesus to the cross. And this is something... You know, we want to picture what happens here. It is not they held him up and nailed him to a cross. They would take that cross beam that he had been carrying, put it on the, on the, on the beam, nail him while he's laying down on this, and then they would winch it up and drop it into a foot to a foot and a half hole because they didn't want it tumbling down after this. So he's nailed to the cross, and then all of a sudden he is just dropped into a hole. And you can picture what that's going to feel like. He's got nails in his feet, nails in his hand, and probably ropes because they, the, the nails were not designed to, to really hold you. They were there for torture purposes. Yeah, I have always heard that they nailed him in the wrist because his hand Yeah. We would say the wrist in our day, but yeah, it would be right, actually right above where those two bones come together because that's the only bone in your arm strong enough to have supported the weight without ripping right out. And one of the things about crucifixion is most people did not get nailed to a cross. Most people got tied to the cross in a way that they weren't going to get back down. But that was just as bad a torture because now you, were, you stayed longer. You didn't lose your blood you know, from, the, from the nail prints. So Jesus is dropped into this. And of course, remember, that's going to drive splinters into your back because you're on a rugged cross and you all of a sudden you're falling down and you all of a sudden jammed and you put weight, you know, pressure on your legs and on your arms. What ends up happening is Jesus is almost dead already. Okay. He has been beaten to within an inch of his life, carrying a cross, huge loss of blood. Remember on Gethsemane, he's already been sweating drops of blood. He's already gone through a night without speech by the high priest people for speaking you know, to the high priest in a way that they didn't think was respectful. He's been uh, scourged. And by the time he gets to the cross, there's huge amounts of, of blood loss. And it's not going to be until he becomes sin that he dies. But he should have probably died at any point before this. 
because of the beating that he took. And then if that wasn't enough, they, they beat him with their fists. They beat him with their hands. And one of the other gospels said they put a sack on his head and, and beat him and say, prophesy, tell us who's been beating you. He took the beating that we deserve for our sin. And we've got to fully understand the price that Jesus paid was for us. You know, not just us in this room, but all of the us in the world. He took the sin of the world and he took the whole punishment of our sin. Paul says he was the propitiation for our sin. And propitiation, if you remember when we talked about that, that's a very big word, but it means he took all of God's anger about sin upon himself. All of it, okay? He was the one that suffered for sin. And he took all the punishment that God was going to dish out on all of humans in his physical body for the sin of the world. And that was why he had to take the beating. That is why he had to go through this torture and, and problems. And the sad thing is, you know, for us, is the guy that it says that it pleased the Father to put him through this. Why did it please the Father? Because he knew that he was going to get us out of the deal. I don't know that he got a very good fair deal, uh, trade out of that deal, but uh, you know, it, he obviously thought it was worth the, the deal because he was willing to do it. And uh, so we see here, he goes to the cross. He's nailed to this cross. They drop him into, into place in the cross, driving splinters up and down his back as he's dropped into it. And on the cross, the way that you're, you were hung, you couldn't breathe without pushing yourself up against those nails in your feet, which were right up against a nerve, nerve bundle in your feet. So you, you pushed yourself up against all the nerves and the pain in your nerves, dragging yourself up against the rugged cross, driving splinters in your back so you could catch a breath, dropping yourself back down the length of the cross because you couldn't push very much on that nerve bundle. And when you had to breathe again, you'd do it all over again. You did. You drowned. You drowned in your own blood. You drowned in the fluid that gathered in your in your lungs from, from it. You, you drowned in, in air. Uh, it was a horrible way of dying, horrible death that Jesus w went through. And for many people, it would take days to die because you, you were able to push up and you would desperately push up even though it hurt. You would push up because your body would be demand air. You'd push up and you'd keep doing this until you had no strength and it usually took people Days, I, I think I read one where it said it took somebody 14 days to die of this crucifixion. And that was, a, that was a abnormally long, but it was usually three to four or five days that they hung on the cross in total pain. So this is not, you know, never get in mind that this is some easy death that Jesus took for us. And we want to always remember the high price of our salvation was this death that Jesus took the beating that he took. And that's what the Father said had to be done for us to be able to be accepted as his, as his, as his children. You know, and it's, we'd never want to forget how, how much it cost. Then it says, they gave, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and, they, and when he tasted thereof, he would not drink. And this 
literally was vinegar and myrrh. And it was to be used to, as an anesthesia, basically, to deaden some of the pain. And it would have been, to the uh, Roman soldiers, it would have been kind of just a fun game. Let's see how long we can keep this person on the cross suffering. And it wasn't a heavy enough anesthesia to take away all the pain, but it was enough to deaden it a little bit. And, that's, and Jesus was ready to take the full wrath of the Father for sin upon him and wasn't going to deaden the pain. He wasn't looking to deaden the pain. That's why he said it turned away and would not drink of it. They were trying to give him something. You, know, and you can almost picture it. You know, Here, we're going to give you something to help make this go a little easier. And in their mind, look, all right, this is going to be great. We're going to get them tortured for a little bit longer. And when they do feel the pain and this stuff wears off, man, they're really going to, uh, really going to suffer. I don't know how they think he could suffer any more than he already has. Because uh, most people did not go to the cross immediately after a scourging. Most of them, if they got scourged, would have a couple of days to be healed a little bit. Then they would go on to the, on the cross. This is, Jesus has got these compounded things. He's been scourged and immediately run off to the cross. And uh, verse 35, and they crucified him in part of the garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. They, par they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation ridden, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on, right, on the right hand and another on the left. All right. So they've taken his clothing from him. And you know this is something that most people are not aware of. On the crucifixion, they died stark naked. Now, none of our pictures ever show that because it would never get published if they had ever showed these pictures. But it was part of the humiliation of the individual was to strip them and put them on a cross. And so they took his clothes and they divided among them. And there, and there was some piece of clothing that was too nice to be torn or ripped. And they gambled that one away just so they could have the picture that, the, that was said, he died. And they gambled his clothes away. And you know, it's kind of an amazing thing when all these things come through and we see over and over how every prophecy was fulfilled. And very specific prophecies. You know, because uh, Psalm 22 says just that. And they gambled, they gambled for my, my possessions. You know, this is not something that is a very simple, you know, uh, you can take this five or six dozen ways. You know, it was very simple. If they went down before his garments, it wasn't fulfilled. And they cast the lots, and then they, then they sat down and watched him. That was their job. They were the executioners, and they sat there and watched him as he died. And they didn't expect him to die very fast. This was very unusual for this to happen. And then it says, and they set over his head his accusation. And one of the things that would happen on the cross, there'd be a placard above the cross that would say, this person is here because whatever their sin, you know, whatever their sins, whatever their accusations were, if it had been Barabbas, would have been terror, you know, terrorists causing so many deaths, so many, so many issues. So the, and uh, what Pilate wrote on there was, this is the King of the Jews. 
basically telling them, don't want to, you don't want to try to claim to be the king. You're, this is where you'll end up. And Rome did this in all prisons, even in prisons, they would, they would nail a placard on the side of your door saying, this is the charges for this criminal. It was a way to tell people, this is what happens when you disobey Rome. And this is their charge. Whatever that charge might be would be nailed by that criminal to say, and it says, this is uh, Jesus, the king of the Jews. In the other gospels, it says that the, the Sanhedrin got angry with Pilate about saying that and said, you should say that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate goes, I've, I've ridden what, what I've ridden, I have ridden. You know, this is almost like a jab from Pilate saying, you know, you're killing your king. Because you know, he thought he was innocent and he didn't want to deal with it. And I think this is a little jab at them, at the Jewish people as well. Yeah. You know, you, you, you've given us your king, we put him on the cross. And again, we've got to keep in mind, and I've said this before, during the Roman days, Rome had no respect for life. All right? There was no respect for life. If you were strong enough to survive, you were okay. If you weren't, you were a weakling who deserved to, to die. And if you weren't strong, they, there was no respect at all for you. Uh, if, you. if they didn't want their children, they threw them in the river or sacrificed them to the gods. Uh, you got too old you, to be of any use to your family, they would just take you off and dump you someplace and or straight, straight out kill you because you were a burden to the family. Sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? You don't want the kid, get rid of it. Your you, mom and dad are going to cost you money. You know, we'll do physician assistant euthanasia and get rid of them. You know, the sad thing is we're returning back to the way things were before Christianity started and brought God's respect for life. And now we're seeing the same thing. We're going right back. You know, it kinda, you know, it's kind of funny when people talk about how we've evolved beyond such barbarities and yet we're going right back to everything that has been done in the past and say, well, yeah, we've really gone forward a long ways. We're going right back to what used to be done. And Rome was bad. Greece was bad. You know, the Persian Empire was bad. Everybody had these mentalities that if you weren't strong enough to survive, you really desire, you deserved to live. If you didn't have a strong enough parent who protected you, you know, or who wanted to protect you, you deserved to die and get, you know, get brutalized. And then Christianity brings in a respect for life, and that reigns for almost 2,000 years before it starts dwindling away. And we're seeing it becoming just like it was in the past. There's a lot of debate on who killed Jesus. Okay? A lot of people will point their fingers at the, at the Jewish people. You killed Jesus. You know, and, and, uh, and yes, in one sense, they did. They gave Jesus over to Rome. Rome was the one that actually gave the order to kill Jesus. And so, yes, they hold guilt for, for that. However, every single person who's ever been alive in this world, it put him on the cross because of our sin. And if it wasn't for our sin, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. But ultimately, the Father put him on the cross because he wanted his sin to be, the, the sin debt to be Reconciled. We're the one that caused it, or Adam and Eve specifically caused it, but even if Adam and Eve had not sinned, people would have sinned afterwards. Somebody eventually would have sinned. So sin put Jesus on the cross. So every single person who's ever been alive put Jesus on the cross. Yes, the Romans were the ones that actually did the execution. Yes, the Jewish leaders are the ones that turned him over to him. 
There's plenty of blame, but ultimately, every single person is the one that put him on the cross. Yeah. And the Father allowed it to happen. And we've got to remember, as harsh as this seems, God poured out all of his anger towards sin on Jesus because Jesus became sin on the cross. And he was perfect. And he was perfect. And had it always been perfect for all of creation, before creation, he was perfect. I could see if he was, you know, but he wouldn't have been this perfect. He would have been the, the possible sacrifice if he hadn't been perfect. Yeah, he wouldn't have been the unblemished lamb, uh, the one without without a spot. But the Father poured out His anger upon Jesus, and Jesus took all the punishment for all of sin upon Himself. Which is why, when God sends somebody to hell, what are they being sent to hell for? rejecting Jesus Christ's sacrifice. They're trying to appear before God in their own righteousness, which Isaiah tells us is filthy rags. So when they, at the white throne judgment, the people are going to stand there in a bunch of filthy rags saying, God, let us in because we've done all these good things. See what we're wearing? <laughs> uh, God, I thought, I thought my righteousness looked a little better than this, you know, and, we're, and they're clothed in rags. And he's going to say, depart. When we talk to people about salvation, they need to understand that it doesn't matter how good they're going to be, it's not good enough because God's demanding perfection. He's demanding the perfect righteousness of his son be clothed upon them. And that takes by rejecting what I can do and saying, God, I'm going to depend on you. Come into my heart, I repent. And then he clothes us in righteousness of Jesus Christ. You've got to believe. And that's why one of Paul's favorite statements was always to be in Christ. So when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. Yeah. He sees Jesus and says, welcome. And this is, you know, but it cost Jesus everything for this to happen. He came, and you know, the most amazing thing is that he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, before before God even lays the foundations of this universe, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit get together and say, we're going to build this world. We're going to create these men. They're going to sin. And Jesus, would you die for them? And Jesus says, yes. And we're not even created it at that point. You know, we're going to create these people, and they're going, to, they're going to sin, and I would like you to go sacrifice yourself. And by the way, that means you're going to take on all the sin and the punishment and take on all the anger for that, 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 we'll, that we will have for that, and you'll bear that, which will separate God, uh, Jesus from God. And that, to me, you know, we've, you know, we haven't got there yet, but the ultimate pain that Jesus went through is when the Father had to turn his back on him because he became sin. You know, that is horrendous and yet he knew that was going to happen and it's just an amazing thought of how willing he was to die for us and take that much pain and how God God knows everything and how he knew what it would feel like to be separated from himself that had never happened before I don't know but he knew what it knew what he was getting into and I just can't figure out how that would happen you know <laughs> but he knew and he knew even before that. And then it says there were two thieves 
crucified with him. This does not necessarily mean that there were only two thieves on it, because sometimes you'll hear people say there were more, and it's quite possible. But there were two. All right. Why these two were mentioned? Well, because they're going to make fun of them in the other Gospels. <laughs> one makes fun of them, and one says, remember me when you get into your kingdom. So there's two. So Matthew's very clearly saying, hey, there's two, one on each side of him. He's not alone up there. He's not by himself. All right, verse 39. And they that passed reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, you that do would destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself if you be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priest mocked him, saying uh, with the scribes and elders and said, he saved others, but himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, and if he will have him, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also that were with him, were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. So Jesus is hanging here, being punished. Being, being punished for the world. And again, we've got more people making fun of him. We have the soldiers making fun of him for being God. Now we've got these people, obviously they were at the trial of the high priest because the accusation that they're using was the same one that went before the high priest. He said he'd tear down the temple and build it up. Okay, this was not generally known because this was not mentioned to Pilate as far as we know. The charge against Pilate, remember, was that he's the king of the Jews. And why did, why did they not use this idea that he was God? Does anybody remember why they wouldn't have said? Pilate wouldn't have cared. He's a Roman. I've got a whole bunch of gods. You want to think he's a god? I don't care if, he, if, he's, if he's deluded and thinks he's a god. It doesn't bother me in the least. So their accusation to him was, he's a, he says he's a king. So these first people obviously have been up all night and were at the priest's, the high priest uh, trial because they're going, hey, yeah, this is the guy that said he'd tear down the temple and build it back up. Hey, come on down. If you can come on down on that cross, you're strong enough to build the temple again. You know, we'll, we'll believe you. All right? And you can hear that, that real bitterness in their voices. You know that it wasn't something real kind. It's like, yeah, yeah, you strong enough to, to tear down the temple and build it back up again in three days. Well, you know. This would have been some of the handpicked people. Oh, these are these handpicked people we talked about that were at Pilate's Gates. Uh, you know, some of them. Yeah, because these are the guys that came to that, that trial. Uh, and then, of course, the high priest mocked him, saying, yeah, he saved others, he, you know, but he can't save himself. You know, and, I, and I love that statement, you know, that he can't save himself. Jesus could have saved himself at any moment. And I've, and I've said, picture it. The angels have charge over him. They're not to let anything happen to him for all, the, all of his life so he could be the perfect spotless lamb. And they're probably standing, I can picture them standing at heaven's gates just like, ah, Father, <laughs> don't you see what they're doing down there? You know, uh, we're supposed to be protecting him. Uh, you know, we've been, you know, we've been worshiping him and guarding him for, you know, since we've been created. And uh, see what those, see what those little uh, ants down there are doing. Those, those, those people, you know, they're killing him. You know, when are you going to let us go? And Jesus never asked for them to come. But, you know, I can picture this in heaven. You know, the angels just, you know, okay, how, much, how long are you going to let this go, Father? Huh? Yeah, that's the song we sing, 10,000 angels. He could have yeah. called 10,000 angels. Yeah. 
know, but their, their accusation is he, he saved others. He can't save himself. And it's like he's up there easily able to save himself. But knowing that if he did that, man was doomed to eternal damnation. And because his love for us held him on that cross. Yeah. At any point, Jesus could have said, Father, these people aren't worth it. I'm not going to go through this pain. I didn't realize it was going to be quite this painful. Or they're just not worth it. I want to come home. And my one question is, I'll ask him, like, why did you create this for me? Do all the things to suffer? You might not care when you get there, but yeah. All the questions we have now, we probably won't have. We probably won't care, but even if we do, I mean, if we do, we'll, we'll get the chance to ask, ask them, maybe. And then uh, he goes, in, and then the accusation, let him deliver him now if he will have him. Okay, why, why this bitterness in their voice? As far as they're concerned, he's, com he's committed blasphemy. He has said, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am God. And well, if you think he's God and he thinks that, that he's God's son, let's see if God will have him. And in their minds, you know, this is totally justified in their minds. You know, he has committed in their mind blasphemy and deserves in their mind to be stoned, but they can't stone him, so let's give him the next best thing. We want him dead. He's getting too many followers. He's causing too many problems. So they want him dead. And it says the thieves also joined in on this, this whole thing. And you know, this is kind of sad to watch. You know, and they're probably tied to the cross rather than nailed to it because it says thieves or malefactors, as some of the newer versions talk about, uh, just troublemakers. <laughs> so somehow they were bad. <laughs> All right, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbathani, which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calls for Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed to give him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone and let's see whether Elijah come, will come and save him. All right. Now why do we think he was calling Elijah when he calls out, my God, my God? I don't know, but we're going to take a look at this. And it says from the sixth hour, that is approximately noon, to the ninth hour, three o'clock, it was dark. Now, there are people that will try to tell you that this was a, a uh, solar eclipse. The only problem with it is Easter falls on a full moon. And you cannot have a solar eclipse on a full moon because the, sun the moon has to come between the Earth and the sun to cause a solar eclipse, All right, which means it has to be a new moon or, a, or the no moon. When the sun is shining off the moon back to the earth, it's a full moon, and the moon is on the other side of the earth, away from the, from the sun. You could have a lunar eclipse during that period of time, but you could not have a solar eclipse. Also, there is no solar eclipse that has ever lasted for darkness for three hours. It could start to get dark, but if you, as you saw back when we had our recent, well, actually, we didn't have much of it, and it was, it was rainy that day. But if you've ever seen a solar eclipse, you might have an hour's worth of any kind of darkness, and even that is only partial. 
and you only have a few minutes worth of darkness. This is a supernatural darkness. Why? Probably because God is saying, he has become sin. I'm going to show you how dark this event really is. On the cross, Jesus became sin. That is when he could die because the wages of sin is death. And when he became sin, he now was able to die and be our sacrifice. And God darkened the world, or at least that portion of the world. And I kind of think it was the whole world. I mean, he, he held in, a, in Joshua's day, he kept the sun up for an extra four, 24 hours. It's not a big deal for him to make it dark. Uh, he created the sun. He can, you know, and remember on the second day, he said, let there be light. All he could have said is for one three-hour period, let there be dark. And it would have been dark. And uh, so for three hours, there's darkness. Now, for the superstitious Romans, this is really going to be a big deal. Uh, we've got, in one of the cases, one of the centurions says, surely this was the Son of God. Okay, they're, they're used to this idea that the gods do capricious things and make it dark or send storms or, or cause problems. But I think even the Jewish uh, leaders are kind of like, uh, what's going on here? Darkness for three hours. And for the most part, the wise men knew how to, the astronomers and wise people knew when lunar eclipses and solar eclipses were going to happen. And if it had been an eclipse, they would have said, yes, and this was the day of the, the great eclipse. And, but three hours is not an eclipse. And it says he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a lot of people that have trouble with that statement, but it is a fulfillment of Psalm 22.1, and Psalm 22.1 starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, <laughs> this is one of the most clear prophecies that, that is given out there because it is word for word what the prophecy says. And at this point, the Father and the Holy Spirit had abandoned Jesus for the first time ever in all of time and all of eternity. He was abandoned. He had become sin, and the Father turned his back on the Son. At this point, Jesus is at his weakest point. Up till now, he's had the Father and the Spirit supporting him in everything he's done. Now, he is God, and that's the only thing that's going to hold him on the cross at this point is that he is God. And he has chosen to be there because of his love for us. But he has no support at this point from the Father and the Spirit. Because he has become sin, and God can have no fellowship with sin. And God himself became sin so that we could be forgiven. And he says, you've forsaken me. And maybe his flesh at this point is really understanding what that meant. Maybe he didn't fully understand, you know, in his flesh what that was going to mean to be forsaken by God. I don't know. I can't say that he didn't know anything because he's God. And knows everything. But how do you know something that has never occurred? I don't know. But yet, he says, you've forsaken me. And the agony of the flesh at that point hits him in his full force. On that Psalm 21, how many years apart was that from... Oh, somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 years. <laughs> just, just a few. <laughs> no, that's just amazing. Yeah. 
Well, the whole picture of the cross has been described through Isaiah and everything some 1,500 years left, before a cross has, never, has ever been used to kill anybody. And that's what I'm, I'm on Isaiah right now. I'm just on the Bible. And, yeah. and now I can, before I never thought of it, but now this is... These are long before the cross has even been considered. Now, the Romans didn't invite, invent crucifixion. It was done by the Greeks and, and various other people, but the Romans perfected it. They had it down to a science by the time it got to them. But even when in the cross was pictured, it's still thousands of years, you know, a thousand years before anybody has used a cross that, that we're aware of in history. And you know, we, we hear his very words being shouted out. Like, But, and then he cries out, and people go, he's calling for Elijah. I don't understand this. I don't understand their reaction. There's got to be some reason, but I've never understood why they would think he's calling for Elijah. Because uh, Elijah was a respected prophet, okay? In, in the Jewish realm, there's two really great prophets in their mind. One is Moses, and the other is Elijah. Now, uh, kind of funny, because Elisha does twice as many miracles as Elisha does. Elijah does, but he's not the one that's recognized. Daniel was a great wise prophet, but, you know, but he's never recognized, probably because he's from the exile. But Moses and Elijah are the two really great prophets of the, of the Jewish belief system. Uh, Elias is the Greek version of Elijah. If you're reading King James, it's, a, it's the Eli, Elias. Uh, and it's Elijah. <laughs> the, new, the, newer, the newer versions, the newer versions usually say Elijah. Uh, but this left it in its Greek format. <laughs> Greek format. And so they say, you know, let's see, you know, and then they ran to get him vinegar. And this is the same vinegar that they tried to give him at the beginning. Okay, let's see if we can take his pain away and see if Elijah's going to come. This would be a big deal to the Jews. I mean, if Elijah comes, why? Because Elijah is the forerunner of the Messiah. And Jesus said that John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah. And so if he all of a sudden, Elijah showed up, they've just put their Messiah on the cross. Okay. So maybe that is why they're looking at, you know, is he really calling for Elijah? Because if all of a sudden Elijah shows up, we're in trouble. Because what did Elijah do on the Mount Carmel? He called down fire and burned, burned it, and he killed all the false prophets, had all the false prophets killed. There's some, there's some concern at this voice here. There's some people up there that are actually wondering, is this the Messiah that we put on that cross? Is this the Messiah? And all of a sudden, it's like if they're, they're going, if, if, if uh, Elijah shows up, uh, what are we going to do? We just put the Messiah on the cross? Uh, that's, it's a big deal to them. Big deal to them at this point. Verse 50. 
Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and there came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared to, unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off the, that which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto them, among which were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and, Ho, and Yosef, Yosef, and the mother of Zebedee's children. All right. Jesus dies, and we don't get, Matthew really doesn't go into all the different statements, but the very last one, he says, it is finished. Telestai, which means it is paid for, it is accomplished. And when Jesus had taken all of God's wrath upon his body, he says, it is paid for. The, the word it is finished, telestai, was what they would write on the bottom of a bill when it said, paid in full. They would write telestai. It's been paid. It's, it's all, it is completely paid. There's nothing left to pay in this. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, it says, he gave up the ghost. It's now done. I've paid the price, Father. It's time to die. I'm giving up this mortal, mortal body. No, no, it's just his spirit. His spirit. Just a kind of a poetic way of the, that the Elizabethan English used to say die. He gave up his ghost, gave up his spirit, because it's actually Numa's spirit. Uh, and then it says, the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. Now, we're told by scholars that the temple veil was extremely thick. I've heard somebody say as much as three feet thick. I don't know if it was that thick or not, but I've heard that statement that it was three three feet thick. And this was the temple, the veil in the temple divided the holy place from the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where they would bring the offering into once a year on the day of atonement and sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. The only problem was in this particular temple, there was no mercy seat to put the, put the blood on in the first place. So I don't know what they put the blood on when they went into the holy, holy place. And the high priest went in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And that's just one, one special person. One person, once a year. And if he hadn't said all of his prayers correctly and repented of all of his sins, they feared that he would die. Now, I don't, I don't know that if anybody ever died doing that, but literally, it's been said, they tied a rope to their ankle, to the bottom of their, to their feet. And if they didn't hear them walking around, they would start dragging them out. And I, I've heard one person say that it happened a couple of times, but I, they didn't provide any historical documents. I don't know if any priest ever died, but that was the fear. You were going into the place where God himself sat on the mercy seat. And it was separated from the holy place. And if, in the holy place, you have the table of showbread, which has the 12 loaves of, of showbread on it. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was anointed with frankincense and oil. You had the menorah, which represented the light of God all the time. And they kept the oil in there lit 24-7. And they had to fill it in morning and evening. And you had the, 
uh, altar of incense, which represented the prayers of the saints going up. So you had those three items in the holy place. And the priest went in there twice a day to the holy place, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, to refill the oil and the incense. And, but only once a year did they go past that, into the, past the veil, into the holy place. And God tears the veil. He tears the veil, and it was from the top to the bottom. And in this temple, that meant that the top was some 20 or 30 feet up. So it didn't just, you know, it literally was God saying, the separation between us has been removed. That's what this is all about. The separation has been removed. There is no separation between me and the people and my saints anymore. And that's what it was all about. Now, I don't, I never read in history what the Jews did about this, what the priests did about this temple being in, because you're not to go into the holy place, you're not to go into the holy of holies, and yet the temple has been ripped, so somebody's going to have to go in there and with some kind of fix. <laughs> I've never read anything about it and never heard anything about it. I'm sure there's something in some historic book somewhere. Yeah, I've heard about that. Uh, yeah, but it was a great honor to, for the high priest to go into the holy, play, the holy of holies, but it was a fearful thing for them to do. Well, whoever was the high priest each, each year, so it was usually the same person for a while, but by Jesus' day, there were so many priests that they rotated it every year or two, so it probably was a new person every year. Because remember, Aaron's high priest until he dies, uh, uh, Eliezer, his son, took over, and he was high priest until he died. And I don't remember who took over after him. Uh, so we have this big event. Jesus died, and God says, the separation has been taken out. Uh, we sing a song, my anchor holds within the veil. And that means my anchor is actually all the way back to the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And Jesus put his blood on the mercy seat of heaven and says, Father, sins are covered. We've, we've, completed, the, we've completed the cost. They are, they're covered. Then there was an earthquake when the veil was torn. And this is kind of a bizarre thing that to think about. The graves were opened and the bodies of saints which slept arose. This is, a this is a big resurrection. Now, how big? Grandpa's visiting you, and he's been dead for 80 years. Uh, you might kind of think something big has happened. Yeah. And it says, they came up out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay. Yeah, this, this is a statement that gets lost in most, to most Christians that this has ever happened. But this would be something, like you said, this would kind of freak you out. Uh, I think we put the wrong person on the cross. Uh, uh, who, did we just, who did we just kill? What kind of power does he have? There's been an earthquake, the temple, the, there's been darkness, the temple veil has been, been torn, and all of a sudden, uh, grandpa and great-grandpa are visiting us, <laughs> and they've been dead for, dead for a long time. Probably because it was the resurrection and said, you, you, you think Jesus was the only one. There's more, there's more people that, have, that were resurrected. Or prove that one day we would. And show that we, will be proved, that we will be resurrected as well. 
It says his saints arose and, yeah. and what, how, why. There's, we don't have much. This is the only statement that I know of about this event. And, and isn't it true that the saints hadn't, they hadn't seen saints for years? There's a huge statement that God did not speak at all for 400 years between Malachi and John the Baptist. I do not buy into that. I believe that he had a remnant and he spoke to his remnant. Uh, but was there anybody that was great that stood out amongst everybody? No. Did anybody come out with inspired scripture? No. So yes, there's this, this silence of God in one sense for 400 years, but that be very careful because I've heard pastors say nothing happened. God didn't do anything during that period of time, and that is not true. God has always had a remnant of people worshiping him. So during this 400 years, things were happening on a large scale? No. But things were happening. God was working with his people. So don't ever get into this idea that he didn't do anything for 400 years. Between Malachi, which is the last prophet, and Jesus' birth. There's a 400-year period where it appears that God did not anoint any prophet to be a writer of, the, of inspired word. So the things they're talking about are... are Anybody who truly believed. Um, they might, they might be all the way back to Abraham for all we know. I mean, this is the first resurrection of the saints of believers that believed on God that were his people. Not every single Jew, because Paul is very clear that not every Jew is one of God's children. Okay, even though they believed they were, he says, unless you're circumcised in your heart, you are not a believer. And this is even in our day, this is what we, we have so many people who claim to be Christians but don't have a circumcised heart, a new spirit within them. They're just saying, mom and dad were Christians, so I'm a Christian, or grandpa was a Christian, so I'm a Christian. I live in America, so I'm a Christian. You know, I kind of maybe think I might believe the Bible a little bit, but Jesus may or may not be the only way, but I'm a Christian. Those kind of people are not Christians. You know, the Christian are those that say, God, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by you. And I have no other plan in my life to try to get to heaven if you're not, if you're not who you say you are. And very important for us to understand all of this. And then the last statement was that I just, we're going a little over, but I want to finish this paragraph. The centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. Okay, darkness, earthquake, tombs cracking open. This is what they, as, as Roman citizens, would go, uh, we just killed somebody important. <laughs> yeah. It said he was the king of Jews, and he says that he was God. I think maybe we just killed God. And in their mind, you could kill a God. It never makes sense to me why they would believe that, but most mythology, you can kill gods. <laughs> and then the last statement, and there were many women that were beholding afar off that followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, now, Mary Magdalene is the one that was, was a, a prostitute, demons uh, cast out of her. The next one is Mary, the mother of James and Yosef. Does anybody know which Mary this one is? Mary's mother of God. Yeah, Jesus' mother. Those are his two brothers' names. It's kind of interesting he didn't say Mary, the mother of God, yeah. uh, mother of Jesus. He names him by the brothers. And then, and the mother of Zebedee's children. <laughs> it's kind of interesting the way uh, Matthew names them. And this is, 
Andrew and James. We have three women named that were brave enough to be near the cross as Jesus dies. And we also know that John is there because in one of the other Gospels he says, woman behold your son, son behold your mother. It's kind of interesting that he didn't give them to one of his half-brothers. Uh, he gave her, gave her into the hands of his disciple John. But, you know, it's interesting that these women are so close to him, and they're going to be the ones that are going to go to the tomb just a couple days from this event. And they're very brave. They're very forthright. Because Rome didn't care, care whether you were male or female when it came to punishing people. So they're out there where it's going to be a potential issue. And we're going to end at this point. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we always help us to remember what you paid for our sin so that we could be able to spend eternity with you. Never let us think that it was cheap or easy for you because you paid the ultimate price and you were rejected by the Father in all of this. Lord, we ask you to keep us in remembrance. Keep those who hear these words in remembrance of that. In your son's name, amen.